0: So I'd like to root this evening's talk in a discourse given by the Buddha called the Satipatthana Sutta. And some of you will be familiar with this discourse, some of you not. But many of the instructions that we've been giving over these days are actually pretty much right from this discourse it's, it's one of the primary teachings of insight meditation that really speaks about the four foundations of mindfulness. Now, in the talk this evening, I will also be drawing a little bit on some of the material that John spoke about yesterday evening. But as I mentioned earlier on today, I no longer make any apology for being repetitive. It follows in a very fine tradition. But I'd like to begin this, the talk this evening with a poem by Mary Oliver. And the poem is actually titled, Mindful. Every day I see or I hear something <clears throat> that more or less kills me with delight, <clears throat> excuse me, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It is what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Now I am talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, nor am I talking about the exceptional but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world, the ocean shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. I very much love this poem by Mary Oliver because I I feel that it, it speaks to the transformation of heart that is made possible, really by our simple willingness to be present in life. It it speaks of the wisdom born of bare attention, born of understanding what it means to. To truly look, to truly listen, to discover joy and peace, and to discover that actually in the very ordinary, the very common, even what feels very drab. That this practice that we are doing here speaks of the the kind of understanding, the kind of wisdom that is born not through pursuing some transcendent, exceptional, disconnected experience, no matter how exciting or uplifting those experiences may be, but as she says in the poem, by instructing ourselves over and over again to open our eyes, to open our hearts to every moment, in our both ordinary and wonderful life. Now, mindfulness, in my understanding, has a twofold purpose. And the first purpose of mindfulness is essentially to illuminate the moment and everything in it, both internally and externally. We shine the light of of wise attention. We, We shine the light of this intentional mindfulness on our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our world. And as we do that, that light of wise attention serves to illuminate that which has been invisible suddenly becomes more visible. That which has been hidden in unconsciousness suddenly becomes increasingly conscious. That which has been shrouded in clouds of confusion or reactivity or dullness or misunderstanding suddenly begins to be more clear. That is the effect of mindfulness that illuminating attention. The sense of awareness, of of being present in a more grounded and balanced and calm way that perhaps at times has felt to be totally impossible, suddenly in the light of mindfulness becomes increasingly possible. Now, this quality of awareness, this quality of mindfulness is also ennobling and empowering. Because that movement into clarity, that movement into balance, is really what allows us to move from an impulsive, accidental life to an intentional life. It is that that groundedness and clarity that allows us to move from a life that is governed by reactivity to a life of responsiveness. It's what allows us to move from, from fear into a greater sense of confidence. Now, this whole process that we're doing here is essentially about waking up and this this is the phrase that is used over and over again in the in the discourses and the teachings is waking up from a dream and the dream that we're waking up from is the dream of imagining how life is the imagining of how i am or you are and to come to know what is actual, to come to know the simple truth of each moment stripped of reactivity and stripped of that imagining. So the first purpose of mindfulness is to illuminate. The second purpose of mindfulness, as at least as it is spoken about in this context, is to liberate. And it is why the Buddha and all, path, all spiritual paths that incorporate mindfulness don't just speak of sati, and sati is the Pali word for mindfulness. They don't just speak of sati, but of sama sati, wise mindfulness. Or sometimes what is spoken about is satipanya, mindfulness and wisdom are insight. now I'm, I'm sure we, we all know and it, it's patently obvious that it, it is actually possible to be mindful without wisdom I mean a shoplifter is really mindful you know a ski jumper needs to be incredibly mindful burglars are often really mindful um, so are golfers tennis players. There's lots of folks in this world who actually have to be mindful either to avoid danger or to excel in what they're doing. I mean, the best I hate to say it, but the best shoplifters are the most mindful shoplifters. (laughs) (laughs) So what they tell you in the store. (laughs) Now, Wise mindfulness is clearly not in this domain, right? It's asking something different of us. The purpose of wise mindfulness to liberate is to liberate the mind and the heart of all that is afflictive. And, of course, the list of what is afflictive is really pretty long. You know, greed, fear, rage... Self consciousness, doubt, envy, anxiety, of obsession, depression, aversion, and of course, all the kind of uh, second wave emotions that are born of those afflictions. You know, and how do we know something is afflictive? Is because, of course, it unsettles our hearts, it wounds our lives and our relationships. And the afflictive is what keeps us tied to struggle and to suffering. And this is essentially what mindfulness, the second purpose of mindfulness, is really concerned with. The freedom from the afflictive. Now, it is also, I think, very, very important to understand that the liberation from the afflictive does not leave a vacuum behind it. But the falling away of the afflictive, you know, certainly it doesn't leave a, a mind and a heart that is numb and disinterested and barren and cold, but it is almost as if the falling away of the afflictive is, is to some extent, and there's something really curious and marvellous about this, but the falling away of the afflictive is the simultaneous arising of that which is healing, liberating, kindness, compassion, empathy, sensitivity, receptivity, courage. In many ways, these qualities are born of and they are the outcome of wise mindfulness. Now, 2,600 years ago, the Buddha gave voice to a very simple truth. He articulated a reality which is as true for us now as it was for people all those years ago. And this is what really John began his talk with last night that woven into the very fabric of life, there is unsatisfactoriness. Now, I would say that when John was speaking about dukkha last night in the context of the Four Noble Truths, the Four Noble Truths, dukkha in that context, is very much concerned with psychological and emotional suffering. When we speak about dukkha in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, it it also incorporates the dukkha that the body the suffering the pain the body can experience now you might wonder why it is that we just keep harping on about dukkha you know and i can assure you it is not to depress you <laughs> and it is certainly not to give a presentation or a suggestion You know, that we, you know, traveling this path is, you know, this very grim and miserable journey and, you know, it it just gets us more and more unhappy. In fact, you know, the Buddha said that this path is a path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness and that the highest happiness is peace. But peace is also born of understanding dukkha. So I'm just going to harp on a little bit longer about dukkha, if you can bear with me about that, and then I'll move right on. Discontent. Discontent. The discontented mind, the discontented heart. Certainly the Buddha never said that life is Suffering. And acknowledge that there is so much in this life that is lovely and joyful to be appreciated and honored and acknowledged. But also taught that the lovely sits shoulder to shoulder with the unlovely. And this, I think, is true in all of our lives. There is, the you know, sometimes the pain that comes with just simply having a body you know, aging, sickness, death and so many afflictions this body can experience that really often at times does feel like one insult after another and the Buddha did acknowledge that just as much as there are you know, difficulties and afflictions in life that the discontented mind and the troubled heart is the greatest of all afflictions the sense of being unfulfilled, unfulfilled, sense of somehow being incomplete, and how that inner sense of insufficiency, that that sense of inner lack in this life, is actually what propels us and catapults us into this endless tension of trying to pursue one thing and trying to avoid another. Feeling that we have really no true rest or refuge inwardly. Now this tension of, of always trying to move towards things, pursue one thing, and to avoid another, get rid of something else, is actually what we're doing in that is is trying to fix dukkha, trying to fix the unsatisfactory. Now, 2,600 years ago, people followed the well-worn and well-traveled paths that we follow in response, or more true to say, in reaction to dukkha, the unsatisfactory. One of those responses, you know, is that we can feel so bewildered and intimidated by affliction that we just try to get rid of it. I mean, for sure, the history of aversion and the history of resistance is equal, exactly equal, to the history of dukkha. We sometimes don't like our bodies and we don't like what is happening in our bodies. And there are armies of people telling us that we can and should have a perfect body. I must admit I was a little astounded sitting in a doctor's surgery last week and picking up a magazine that told me aging was optional. <laughs> oh what a place to have this, you know. <laughs> We sometimes don't like our relationships or our jobs, you know. So we blame and we get aversive and we get agitated. Very often we don't like our minds. We don't like our emotions. So, you know, we get busy. We turn on the TV. We, you know, we we take a pill. We do whatever we can. You know, some years ago in Time Magazine, which I always find very instructive, there was an article about Gus, the polar bear, who lived in New York Zoo, lived in the Bronx, in the zoo. And some one point the then the zookeepers noticed that Gus was having problems. You know, he was he was swimming up and down repetitively in his pool all day long, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So they called in these armies of animal psychologists, you know, to try and figure out what was wrong with Gus. You know, and after a while studying him, studying behaviour, they decided Gus was bored so the response was they filled his pool up with all these toys and they said that their their summation of this prescription was they said well hey works for us doesn't it (laughs) so often we try to control this wild and unpredictable life And yet find that we keep ending up in the same place of frustration, of frustration and discontent. And there really are limits to our power to fix and avoid dukkha. And this doesn't suggest that we are helpless or powerless, but we actually need to acknowledge and to know the limits of the power we have. To, to fix and avoid dukkha. Knowing those limits is actually one of the very first insights that's really critical. Because if we don't acknowledge the limits to our power simply to fix and avoid dukkha, which is like saying there are limits to our power to fix and avoid life, if we don't acknowledge that, we get caught in these endless uh, loops of agitation and busyness, always thinking that we just haven't figured out the right strategy yet. And there must be a strategy that we haven't tried. So this is a very important insight just to acknowledge we can't always fix it. Hmm? We can't always fix life. We can't always fix dukkha. Now the Buddha suggested something extraordinarily simple but very profound in its implications. He said that the cure for dukkha is not found outside of dukkha but within it. That the base The base of suffering is also the ground of awakening and freedom from suffering. But that we need to know, we need to learn how to stop running and how to stop fleeing, how to stop avoiding and how to cease being intimidated and really to look dukkha in the eye. Now, the path of mindfulness, in my understanding, is really not so much about changing the furniture in the rooms of our lives, but it's about changing the shape of our mind. And this is the concern or the direction of transforming and liberating the heart. Now, centuries ago, you know, when we all used to hang out in caves, surviving day-to-day surrounded by danger and an often hostile world these chronic patterns of flight and defense or attack often kind of made sense you know when a a sound in the night could be the the signal that preceded a life threatening event now clearly we don't live in those rocky caves anymore but we can still live in our own caves of aversion and resistance and fear, almost as if they're sort of hardwired into our psyche, on guard, imagining danger, doing all that we can to prevent present and future discomfort. Creating strategies to protect and defend essentially our constructed personal identity. Somehow believing that if we can if we can protect and defend this constructed personal identity, we're also gonna have figured out a way to protect ourselves from this unpredictable life. Now, of course, some will say that this is it's very natural and it's very human to avoid discomfort. And I agree totally there is some truth in that. I mean, I'm sure we'd all rather be fed than hungry. You know, we'd all rather be warm than freezing. We'd all rather be healthy than ill. That's not a problem. You know, we'd rather. Rather is okay. Demand doesn't really work. Rather is okay because we really see that, as much as we might try to avoid life, life has absolutely zero interest in avoiding us. This is actually something very useful to acknowledge. So we were all—we're all going to have our own measure of the unavoidable. You know, a Zen teacher was once asked, "What is the secret of your happiness?" And he said it is a complete, unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable, <laughs> which is actually life, the complete unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable now the whole practice this whole path, but in many ways the whole practice of mindfulness revolves around the recognition and the understanding that some dukkha is is avoidable and some dukkha in life is simply unavoidable so this whole path is is really centered around understanding struggle and discontent and suffering, understanding how it is born, as John was speaking about last night, identifying the root causes and developing a path to liberate the heart and mind from the oppression of discontent and struggle, essentially to cultivate a mind and a heart that is a friend. The Buddha spoke about the boundless, peaceful, illuminated, radiant, free heart. Now, if that just sounds too excessive to you right now, think at least about our path is in the service of being free from these endless cycles and loops of reactivity that feel so oppressive. That mindfulness is in the service of radically altering our relationship to dukkha. That instead of resistance or avoidance or endurance or even the tendency to romanticize pain, we learn, as we talked about today, to acknowledge, to allow, to accept, and that this is the first step in transformation. Now, the Satipatthana Sutta, as I mentioned, is is probably one of the primary discourses that really outlines the path of mindfulness. It outlines the path of cultivating insight. It really, the Satipatthana Sutta is essentially a roadmap. It's a roadmap that shows us how we might undertake this path of developing. Mm -hmm this very profound and unshakable sense of inner content and completeness. So the, the sutta, the discourse begins by encouraging us to turn the light of mindfulness to contemplate the body, feeling, mind, and everything in the mind that either afflicts or awakens us now, this is, this is the classroom of wise mindfulness. It's right here. We don't have to go anywhere. It's a teaching of imminence. It's a teaching of peace. It's a teaching of liberation. Now, I'd like to look at this whole domain of contemplation. Because in truth, in our lives, we actually do spend a lot of time contemplating our bodies, feelings, and mind. I don't think this is new to anybody, is it? And we've all spent years contemplating our bodies, feelings, and minds. I mean, if you're in a lot of pain, also, basically, you've got no choice. You're going to contemplate your body. If there is emotional chaos or thoughts that are obsessive and demanding, we contemplate them with great intensity. But here's the thing that we don't often contemplate them wisely, but we contemplate the body feeling and mind almost through the lens of aversion and fear and anxiety and agitation, you know. What what what's happening here? You know, why is this happening to me? How do I get rid of it? It's not fair. It shouldn't be happening. I mean, it's not unfamiliar terrain, is it? This is kind of like the contemplation of unwise mindfulness. Now, what unwise contemplation does is that it actually turns into obsession. Hmm? If we contemplate the body, mind, feeling through the lens of aversion or anxiety, it turns into obsession. And In the Buddha once said, he said, the mind that obsesses becomes agitated, and the mind that is agitated is far from freedom. He also said that the mind that doesn't obsess doesn't become agitated and the mind that's not agitated is close to freedom. I would also mention that the Buddha used obsession slightly differently than we do, because we you know we think of obsession as these gripped, you know, endless, tormented loopings. Where in the Buddha's kind of teaching to have the same thought more than once <laughs> is obsession. <laughs> bar slightly higher. <laughs> So the teaching of mindfulness, and I mean this is really important is, you know, because I think the great gift of this teaching as I understand it is that it always builds upon what we already know. It doesn't ask us to entertain you know, these exotic, unfamiliar territories but builds upon what we already know. So the teaching of mindfulness doesn't ask us to change the field of our contemplation but it asks us to change the lens through which we contemplate life. Instead of contemplating through the lens of the more familiar agitation or aversion, we learn through wise mindfulness to contemplate body, feeling and mind through the lens of curiosity, interest, kindness, investigation, and we really see that the cornerstone of wise mindfulness, it really revolves around understanding the way in which our world is born moment to moment. Now, in the discourse of wise mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta, there's two areas that are stressed. Now, the first area that is stressed is, is actually outlines, you might say, the field of our contemplation. You know, so it talks about the body, about feeling, about the mind, and about mind objects. Now, the second area of the discourse that is really stressed, so the first is the field, and the second is the insight, the understanding. Now, this discourse is laced with a range of instructions of what to contemplate and how. And as we've experienced here, that contemplation is in truth really an experiential investigation. Now, as the discourse is is outlined, you know, it talks about contemplating the body, then about contemplating feeling, then about contemplating, just as we've been doing here. But following each section that, I, that kind of talks about the field, there's a second paragraph, and that second paragraph has a heading, and it says "Insight." It says "Insight." Just of those, just in case we, we miss the point <laughs> just in case we miss the point of the contemplation, it's kind of got its own. It's got its own headline: "Insight." That the transformation is not in the contemplation alone, but in the insight that is born, insights that are born of that contemplation. So that's a little bit what I want to talk about tonight. Now, in the instructions to contemplate body, feeling, and mind, it's suggested that we contemplate the body internally and externally that we contemplate feeling internally and externally, that we contemplate the mind internally and externally. This is, uh, we might just really notice, what is the usual lens through which we contemplate body, feeling and mind? It's usually through the lens of my body, my feeling. My mind. Now, when we contemplate the body, and we we have already gone over this territory some, you know, we discover that within this body there is actually much that is lovely and delightful. And we discover the ways that this body is really a vehicle for embodying in our life all that is compassionate and loving and caring. You know, so I, Walt Whitman once said that everything we have ever done, everything we do and everything we will ever do will be done through and in this body. Now this body can also experience much that is painful times of sickness, it will age, will die. There is dukkha actually woven into the life of this body. There is a whole extra world of torment and fear and anguish that is woven into the phrase, my body. This really speaks to the, the dukkha that is born, as John spoke last night, of identification. I am my body. My body is me, and therefore all that happens in my body happens to me. And through the lens of that identification, we struggle. We actually fear our own bodies. We fear fear illness, fear the possibility of, of death. We fear aging. We can build a world of suffering upon appearance. Now, the contemplation of the body internally and externally is really in the service of loosening this quite toxic link between the body and the my. Now, the prim- one of the primary insights that is born of contemplating the body through the lens of wise mindfulness is firstly to really deeply understand that this body, my, this body, is born of conditions. And is subject to conditions, and that we never have been, and never will be, in control of all conditions in this life. There's an ad I've heard on the radio recently. With they keep putting out these these what if scenarios, <clears throat> you know. That they, they there's this is ad and it says you know. Well, if Mary had got up twenty minutes earlier this morning and hadn't taken half an hour choosing which dress to wear, then she would have left home an hour earlier, therefore she wouldn't have been at the intersection where the driver pulled out and didn't see her and ran into her car. And it's this whole long list of what if? And then of course this is put out by an insurance company, you know, and and it says, you know, It, it seems like, accidents are bad luck. But finding who to blame doesn't have to be so unlucky. <laughs> so I thought, well, this is kind of like quite classic to, to sort of explain about how we often approach life. You know, if I hadn't done that, and I'd been there, and I'd been there. As if we live in this illusion that if we'd just been better at controlling conditions, our life would be different than it is. Well, you know, quite frankly, isn't this something of an illusion? I mean, did you get up this morning and decide your knee was going to hurt today? You know, did, did anybody get up this morning and decide this was a good day to be pissed off at the world? You know, or this was a really good day to be aversive, you know? Or could we get up this morning and decide that, oh, yeah, this day is going to be the end of all struggle? You know, as if we're in control of these conditions, could we get up this morning and say, the wind is not going to blow? That's about as silly as feeling that we can control all of the conditions in our body and in this life. Now, this world of what if and blame and should, this is unwise mindfulness. Now, wise mindfulness is not suggesting that we are helpless in this world of conditions, because into this world of conditions, we introduce all manner quite intentionally of other conditions. We introduce a condition of mindfulness. You know, we introduce a condition of intentionality. We introduce a condition of kindness, and the very introduction of those conditions has an effect upon other conditions. But what we are not introducing into this mandala is the illusion that somehow we have failed if we have been unsuccessful in controlling the conditions that touch this body. That touch this body. You know what? We could be the most incredibly mindful person in the whole world. And this body is still going to get sick and age and die. Isn't that something? (coughs) And what we do come to know that this is not a teaching of powerlessness or resignation, but in fact absolutely the opposite. Because what we really come to know that the only true peace and freedom in this life is both born of living in accord with the way things actually are, living in accord with the simple truth of how things actually are, stripping our world of the what-ifs and the shoulds and if the, the if-onlys, because that's the world of torment. Now contemplating the body and the feeling and, and mind internally is really in the service of easing this grip of self-preoccupation and fear. And you know what, when we contemplate our body, feelings, and mind internally, we start to understand that in truth we are contemplating the landscape of all bodies, of all feelings, and of all minds. You know, a woman in the midst of a very chronic illness once told me, she said, when I stopped asking, why is this happening to me, and could really say, Why wouldn't this happen to me? Then the healing could begin. In a way we see that the the afflictions and the pain that this body can experience, the affliction and pain that all bodies can experience, to know this deeply, profoundly, unshakably, is also to see the futility of denial and aversion and resistance. It loosens the grip of self-preoccupation, and that is what really allows the flowering of compassion, of kindness, of empathy. Now, I I want to read you something. It's a little bit long, so I apologize in advance. It's a story from a hospice. So Hazel had come into the hospital in a very contracted state. She was a very difficult patient. Few wished to spend time with her. Whenever her bell rings, people who answered are greeted with nasty comments and considerable verbal abuse. Hazel, of course, spends a lot of time alone. All her life she'd been a in a struggle for control. Seldom had she just let life be. All that she didn't want or could not have was judged and pushed away from her heart. All that she could get was grasped at fierce, feverish, feverishly. And so she found herself dying alone in a great deal of pain. She had judged so many so often that even her children would not visit. She was becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy Of anger and despair. For six weeks, her isolation and pain increased until one night something changed. She came to a point where she could no longer stand the suffering in her back and legs or the pain of her unlived life. At 4 a.m., feeling like jumping out of her skin, she began to review her life amidst the pulsations of her pain. Never had it been so clear how her intense holding had created such intense pain, such a sense of desolation. She saw how the considerable suffering she had caused her in her lifetime had come back to her at death time. She had nowhere to turn. She had never felt more alone or helpless. Feeling death approach, she remembered herself as a youngster, open and hungry for the world. She saw how she had closed down over the years. With a sigh, she let the helplessness wash over her, and exhausted, unable to fight another moment, she surrendered and let go, and died into her life, into the moment. Letting go into the pain in her spine and legs, she began to sense quite beyond reason that somehow she was not alone in her suffering. She felt what she later called the 10,000 in pain. She began to experience all the other beings who at their very moment were lying in that same bed of agony. The brown-skinned woman breast slack from malnutrition lying on her side, a starving child sucking at her breast, empty breast. For an instant she became this Ethiopian woman with the same pain in the back and legs and hips. There arose the experience of an Eskimo woman lying on her side, dying during childbirth, tremendous back, pain in her back and legs, and dying the same death. Image after image arose of the 10,000 in pain. She experienced herself as a youth with yellowed skin curled up on his side on a dirty mattress, dying of hepatitis in a junky flat. As an old woman with greyish skin dying of old age, each with the same pain. In the hour of her greatest agony, something in her connected with the enormity of the suffering she was sharing at that moment. She said, the pain was beyond my bearing. I couldn't stand it any longer, and something broke. Maybe it was my heart. But I saw it wasn't just my pain, it was the pain. It wasn't just my life. It was all life. It was life itself. The Buddha said that everything we need to understand and can understand can be understood within the length of this body. Sometimes they're very hard lessons. When there's pain, when there's aging, when there's uncertainty... They're very, very hard lessons to learn. But they are the lessons we learn. Remember years ago when I practiced in a monastery in Thailand, you know, and and monasteries in Thailand are always in this huge state of construction and noise and chaos. And I mean, I know you probably imagine these peaceful refuges, but go to Tesco, it's easier. Um, But at one point in this monastery, in the midst of this construction field, I went to this abbot in despair, and I said, how am I supposed to practice? How am I supposed to be mindful in the midst of all of this? And he said, how can you not? And we might sometimes feel that in the body, in the mind, when it is very painful to be with And we we often can feel, how can I practice? How can I be mindful in the midst of all of this? And then maybe we also come to that same understanding. How can we not? As we contemplate this body more and more deeply, even the words internally and externally, my body, your body begin to fall away. And we come to know, as the Buddha says in this discourse, we contemplate the body as the body. We contemplate feelings and mind internally and externally. We're learning all the time, moment to moment, to let go of blame and fear and aversion and selfing. We all have our own measure of the pleasant and the unpleasant and the neutral in this life, as do all beings. I mean, our mind is in so many ways unique to us. You know, no one else in the world has lived life in exactly the same way or experienced things in exactly the same way. But there is also a, universe and a universality in the mind and the patterns of the mind. And we see this mind with its remarkable capacity for, for confusion and sadness and anguish but also this mind with its remarkable capacity for clarity and love and calmness and compassion. Contemplating the mind internally and externally we come to know deeply unshakably, that my mind, your mind that lens is loaded with the potential for blame and aversion. Or we can come to know mind as mind. Now, wise mindfulness is illuminating this world with wisdom. It's not conceptual, it is very experiential. Knowing the simple truth of the body, the simple truth of feeling, the simple truth of the mind without embellishment. And this is another of the insights, another of the liberating insights emphasized in the discourse. The simple truth of the moment without embellishment. I mean, you've probably experienced here over these days, you know, we're pretty expert uh, storytellers are pretty good at narrative. You know, the most innocent and innocuous, sight, sound, taste, can get embellished with the most remarkably elaborate stories. And the more associations we have with a sight or a taste or a smell, the more complex our stories become. You know, you can see one on the retreat who's got, whose ears remind you of your mother's ears. And before you know it, you know, on this whole kind of big trip about imagining how you know that person, just like your mother, and your mother was like this, and, you you know, we could spend hours in that world of embellishment. And, you know, we tell a lot of stories about ourselves, just as other people have told stories about us to us. And it's you know, I'm terrible, wonderful, amazing, anxious, fearful, audacious. You know, I am, you are, life is, should be, used to be, must be, might be. This is the landscape of struggle. It really is the landscape of anxiety. And this is what we're learning to liberate with wise mindfulness, to le- the lessons that we learn in the body to see sensation as sensation. Are the lessons that are translated into the contemplation of our mind and our understanding of life? To know a thought as a thought, a feeling as a feeling, a sound as a sound. You know, there's a story from the time of a Buddha where a man whose life was very tormented and tortured heard about the Buddha and heard about this teaching of liberation. So he packed his bag and traveled across India in search of the Buddha. And he got to the monastery where the Buddha was supposed to be. And and the people in the monastery said, I'm sorry, the Buddha's not here right now. He's out on his begging round. Why don't you sit down, rest a while, wait, the Buddha will come back soon. This man said, "No way! I can't wait, you know. I, I have to, I have to know the answer to my torment." He said, "Tell me where I can find the Buddha." So, you know, the people in the monastery. So he's out in the city. He's on the begging man. So the man hurried into the city with his bag and all, and all this haste. And he found the Buddha going from door to door with his begging bowl. And he said, "Buddha, Buddha, you know." Uh, can you, you've got to help me right now. You know, my life is in torment. My life is a mess. You know, you've got to tell me the answer of how to fix this torment. And the Buddha said, you know, it's not really the right time. You know, I mean, you can actually see, you know, there's a lot, a lot going on here. You know, why don't you go back to the monastery and wait for me? And the man says, oh, I can't wait. He said, you know, if I go back to the monastery and wait for you, you might die. I might die. I'll never get the answer. He says, you've got to tell me right now. So the Buddha says, okay, 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 you know. Clearly this guy's not going to go away. So he said it's really simple. He said it's really simple, here it is. He said, in the seeing there is just the seeing. In the hearing there is just the hearing. In the thinking there is just the thinking. In the feeling, there is just the feeling. In the walking there is just the walking. In the sitting, there is just the sitting. Doesn't sound that profound does it, but try it. Is try it. It's a different lens. Moment to moment we are really learning to calm our narrative, not because the story is wrong, but because sometimes it's fabricated and it confuses the reality. Moment to moment we're learning to come closer to what is, to learn to liberate our hearts from fabrication and rumination not depriving ourselves of wise effort or wise action, but learning to find that simplicity. The third of the insights... I'm sorry I'm going on so long here tonight. It's not not supposed to be happening. (laughs) But I could finish down. I'm only halfway through the sutra. (laughs) I'm a little bit more than halfway. I'm two thirds of the way, so I do apologize. The third of the uh, talk faster. <laughs> the third of the insights embedded in the teaching of mindfulness is to deeply understand that the truth of impermanence and its implications. To sense the arising and passing as we experience it in the body, as we experience it in feeling, as we experience it in the mind. The Buddha said that this is the most profound of all insights. This is the most insight that has the most profound effect in opening the doorway to a liberated heart. See that we cannot make anything stand still, and in truth, nothing does stand still. All those thoughts that this will be here forever, this will last forever, it cannot be. It cannot be. And the more acute your mindfulness is, the more acutely are you aware of how change is happening moment to moment. It is if every single thing that appears in this life has written upon it the message, let go. Now, of course, this is one of the primary aspects of this teaching. Now, a lot of times in our life we learn about letting go the hard way because we often learn about letting go through involuntary renunciation. You know, things change that we don't want to change. People we love die. We lose things we cherish. You know, things, things disappear that we would counted on, on on staying around. And so we often learn about letting go the really hard way. It's a kind of involuntary renunciation. But the more our understanding deepens and the more we align ourselves and truly see the changing nature of all things in the body, the mind, the heart, we can actually begin to make this subtle but very profound shift into a voluntary letting go rather than an involuntary renunciation. And then that voluntary letting go is not suffering. You actually feel the release of it. You feel the happiness of it. You feel the peace that is born of not holding on, not trying to hold on to anything at all. Seeing the cycles, the seasons that are happening in our own bodies, minds, and life, moment to moment. Sadness, happiness, birth, death, beginnings, ending, endings, joy, sorrow. Aren't these the seasons of all life? And we can, we can so finely attune ourselves to the naturalness of those seasons that we learn to let go of the struggle, the despair, the helplessness, and the fear, that is so often, comes of trying to resist and deny those seasons. We're learning really the happiness of letting go, of clinging and identification, and this is embedded in the teaching of wise mindfulness. And it's not a magical practice, and you know, it's not a, a practice, of instant realization. This is a moment to moment journey. It's a moment-to-moment journey. But, you know, the whole of our life, life has been teaching us about letting go. And there comes a point we need to also teach ourselves about letting go, about not identifying. Then that is when we have the complete unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. And we discover it's not unhappiness. But this is happiness. This is freedom. This is rest. This is ease. This is actually what refuge is about. If we have just a moment quietly together. <clears throat> It is what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Thank you for listening.